Never underestimate your rivals. Never underestimate your rivals. This is a golden rule of life that I came across somewhere in my reading this past week. Rivalry is competition for the same objective or for superiority in the same field. You see rivalry in your life in all kinds of areas of your life. You see rivalry among the siblings in your family. You see rivalry among your favorite sports teams, rivalry among schools in your area, universities and high schools. You see rivalry in political parties and in the various companies that work hard to acquire your dollars. But the rivalry that we see in this story, the rivalry between Israel and Syria is next-level rivalry. Think of the Montagues and the Capulets, the Hatfields and McCoys, the Crips and the Bloods. You might even think of Mickey D's and the BK Lounge or Taylor Swift and Katy Perry, the Dallas Cowboys and the Philadelphia Eagles. (laughs) They have nothing on the blood-stained rivalry that we see between Israel and Syria in this story. The Syrians were a thorn in Israel's side for over 500 years from the time of the judges all the way through the life and times of Elisha the prophet. And in all of those years, only King David was able to conquer and subdue the Syrians and to keep them at bay. But even that came at a high cost of thousands of bodies and much bloodshed on both sides. After David's time, there was no one to keep the Syrians in check. And so little by little, they mounted a comeback. And over time, they grew more bold and more brash and even more brutal. You can read about these ancient wars and conflicts in the Old Testament books of Samuel and the Kings. You can even read about the ongoing modern conflicts between Syria and Israel in your daily news, and favorite media outlets. But what we see in this story is curious because we see something of the mystery of God's providence at work. God used the Syrians in a variety of ways in the life of Israel. Early on, he used the Syrians as sparring partners to help train Israel for war. Later on, as Israel became more rebellious against the Lord, the Lord used Syria as a stumbling block to test Israel's devotion to the Lord. But to be totally clear, as we look at this story, I want you to think differently about Israel and Syria. It's so easy as you read the Old Testament to think Israel good, everyone else bad. But in this story, the roles are reversed. Because we're dealing with Israel that is steeped in sin. Israel bad. But the Syrians somehow are doing good things. And what we see in this story is that contrary to popular belief, God demonstrates that he actually cares about all the nations of the world and not just one. God loves the world. Jesus was sent on mission to save the world, not to condemn the world, to save real people from every tribe and language and nation and tongue, real people under heaven. God loves the world. He cares about the world, including the Assyrians in this story. And God cares about the Assyrians in very specific ways. We learn early on that God cares about their political life. 
He sent two of his prophets to deal with their kings. Elisha was sent by God to anoint a man named Hazael to become the king of Syria. And then later, the man who succeeded Elisha, Elijah, Elisha is the one who succeeded. He goes to Hazael and he says, the Lord has told me that you are to be king over Israel. So God is concerned about, I'm sorry, king over Syria. God is concerned about Syria and not just Israel. And this should bring us some measure of comfort because what it tells us is that the Proverbs are true, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and the Lord turns that king's heart wherever he will. What that means is that God is involved in the life of the kings of Israel, he's involved in the life of the kings of Syria, and he is involved in the life of kings in our day, he's involved even among presidents and prime ministers. God is able to turn their hearts as a stream of water in his hand. And that gives us comfort. As we look at the world, we say God is sovereign over all the geopolitical mess that we see. He's in charge of all of that. Another example of the Lord's love and care more acutely is found in the life of Naaman the leper, which is in the story before us today. Naaman is introduced to us as this sort of celebrity figure in Syria, commander of the army of the king of Syria, a great man with his master, and he's held in high favor among the people. And here's the reason the scriptures give us. It is because through Naaman the leper, the Lord had given victory to Syria. Through Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Syria, which meant that even in Syria's conflicts with Israel, the Lord had granted them victory. Now, if you're an Israelite, that could be kind of troubling. We thought you were our God, our mascot, on our side. What are you doing working for the Syrians? The Lord grants great victory through Naaman, the commander of Syria's armies. Why? Because when God looks at the whole world, he works all things together for his glory and for the good of the world. Not just for individuals like us or our favorite teams or our favorite countries. The Syrians, by the way, frequently raided Israel. They sent these raiding parties into Israel and they took People. They took property. They took all kinds of uh, things from Israel and carted them back to Syria. As commander of Syria's army and a champion in warfare, Naaman played a role in that. He played a part in those raids. So much so that at some point, a little girl who had been taken captive out of the land of Israel shows up in Naaman's house and becomes a servant to Naaman's wife. Now, it would be easy for us to blow past that and just focus our attention on Naaman, but I want us to pause and think about this little girl's life for just a moment. Here's a little girl that has gone through the traumatic experience of being in a war-torn country. She has gone through the traumatic experience of being taken away from her family, taken away from her friends, taken away from her town. And now she shows up in the land of Syria, in the household of the commander of the armies that were responsible for wrecking shop in Israel. 
We don't know exactly how she ended up in Naaman's house. We don't know if she was kidnapped from her family. We don't know if she was rescued. Maybe someone saw her as an orphan roaming the streets, trying to figure out where to go. And they rescued her from the streets and brought her to Syria as an act of mercy. We don't know. All we know is that she ends up in the house of Naaman and his wife. And God starts to work through this little girl's life to accomplish something spectacular. Whatever others intended for evil, God intends for good, even in this little girl's life. Think about her. She grew up in exile, a stranger in a strange land. She's an Israelite in a Syrian military family. But through all of this trauma, through all of this change, all of the things that are happening around her, she does not forget the Lord, nor does she forsake him. Now, to say she's a little girl for our purposes would mean that she is younger than a teenager. She hasn't quite to youth group yet. That's how young she is. But somehow she is aware of who God is and what God was doing in the world. And she must have been treated well at Naaman's home because she develops a, a care and affection for Naaman. She is concerned about him. So concerned that one day she plucks up the courage to go to her mistress and say, if only my master knew the prophet in Samaria, he could go see him and that prophet would cure him of his leprosy. So somehow this little girl, before she was taking, taken captive, learned stories about Elisha. She knew about his power. She knew how he had done great and mighty works in the name of the Lord. And she's pointing this man to that prophet. Now, Naaman was a rock star in Syria. He's a decorated officer of the military, a mighty man of valor. He has everything in the world going for him, everything going his way, except little asterisk at the end of all of his uh, records. He's a leper. Don't bring it up. Don't talk about it. He's a leper. Nobody wants to bring that up. It's the elephant in the room. He has leprosy, which in the ancient Near East meant something like this, that he is basically among the walking dead. If you had leprosy, you were considered an outsider, someone unclean, someone who is losing their life if they haven't already lost it. You certainly couldn't enjoy life the way everyone else could. So this little girl, concerned about Naaman and his leprosy, plucks up the courage to tell the good news to the mistress who shares the news with Naaman. And then Naaman begins to make plans to go to Syria. Now I want to say something to all of you little girls who are with, with us today. I want you to know, little girls, that you matter. You matter. You matter to God. You matter to us. Your life is valuable. God loves you. He has purposes and plans for your life. You have a role to play in the purposes of God in the world. And maybe you don't know what all of those things are now. Maybe you don't know what you're going to do with your life or what role you can play in your life. But I want you to take courage from the story of this little girl that if God can work through her life, even in those very hard situations, God can certainly work through your life. She pointed other people to the power of God. And you can do the same thing with your family and friends. Point other people to Jesus, who is the healer of body and soul.
Who is Elisha? Elisha is this prophet that takes up the mantle in Elijah's place when he saw his master being taken away in the chariots and horses of fire as he was carried up to heaven. Elisha receives a double portion of the prophet's spirit, so he's able to do even mightier works and mightier deeds than his master was able to do. It's no wonder that this little girl knew about him and could say, go see that prophet. Now, the fact that Naaman secures permission from his king and then safe passage from the king of Assyria tells you something about how he was viewed by both kings. He's held in high regard. But even deeper than that, the fact that Naaman decides to take this action tells us something about his character, something about his heart and life. On one hand, you could say, well, is this just an act of desperation? He's tried everything in the world to get rid of leprosy. He might as well try this one last thing, last-ditch effort, might as well. What can it hurt? Or is it something else, an act of devout expectation? You think about what's happening here. You know how difficult it is for any man in the 21st century to listen to his wife, much less to listen to a little girl and to follow their lead or take their advice to heart. But in the ancient Near East, it was unheard of. In the ancient Near East, women were property and kids were to be seen and not heard if they were to be seen at all. And so for Naaman to not only hear this little girl's message, but then to hear it also through his wife and to take action on it shows us something about his character. He's not only a man of valor on the battlefield, he is a man of honor on the home front. And it's something we can learn from. It's something that encourages us as we consider our own marriages, our relationships with our wives, as we consider relationships to our children. Sometimes it's good to humble yourself, to become like a little child, to hear what God is saying to you through other people. This is what Naaman does. He crosses the border here. You love this picture, right? He crosses the border with all the pomp and circumstance of a celebrity military giant. He's got the horses and the chariots, and they're all loaded down with gifts. He's making a big show of his arrival to Elisha's place. And then he rolls up to Elisha's house, and to make it more relevant to us, imagine him rolling up to Elisha's house in a tricked-out Humvee with the dark windows and the ice-cold AC blowing on him, and he's just out waiting for the prophet to come see him. Because in his mind, he has already scripted how this story is going to unfold. He's going to roll up, park in the driveway, the prophet is going to come out, tap on the window, give him some advice about what to do. In fact, he expects a magic trick. Because he says the prophet's going to come out, he's going to say the magic words, he's going to make the magic gestures, and then I'm going to be cured, and I'm going to load him up with a whole lot of really cool stuff that I brought. Fine clothes, wine, blankets, all kinds of neat things. I'm just going to load him up with these gifts because he's going to heal me. That's the payment for the magic trick. Instead, what happens is he comes up and a messenger comes out to him and says, you need to go take a bath in the Jordan River. Wash yourself seven times and you will be restored. Your flesh will be clean. This is not the response that 
Naaman wanted. Naaman is perturbed, to put it mildly. He throws a baby fit. He goes into a fit of rage. He puts up resistance. He doesn't want to do this. You see, Naaman goes into this thinking about Elisha's ministry the way a lot of people think about the ministry, is that the prophet is for sale. I'm going to get my way. He's going to show me favoritism. He's going to show me partiality because, look, I'm the guy that writes the fat checks. But that's not what Elisha does. He keeps sipping his coffee and exegeting the next passage, whatever he was doing in the house. And Naaman can't stand this. You see, Naaman is upset because his pride and his ego have been assaulted. He is used to being favored and exalted and people paying attention to him. He's used to getting special treatment, but he's not getting it here. The commander will not be commanded. No one is going to tell him what to do. He is used to being the guy who tells this soldier, go, and that one goes, and tell this one, come, and he comes, and the other one, do this, and he does it. He's used to getting his way. He's used to people responding to him with respect, with awe. But he doesn't get that from the prophet. The prophet shows no partiality or favoritism, and he simply tells him, go take a bath in the Jordan, and you'll be cleansed. So things aren't playing out the way he hopes. You ever had this happen to you? Your pride gets bruised? Your ego gets in the way? I mean, don't people know who you are? This is what he's thinking. He reveals his disgust for Israel by saying, the rivers in my country are far better than the rivers in this country. They're cleaner, they're more pristine. The water over here in the Jordan is filthy. It's brown, it's murky. What, you telling me to go wash in that? Couldn't I wash in my own rivers and be clean? And the question would be, well, how many times have you been in those rivers and come out still as a leper? It's not about the river, Naaman. It's not about the place. The power to heal comes from the Lord God, not from the waters. The power to heal comes from the Lord God, not from the place. But here Naaman is. He turns away in a rage. I've come across men like this in the course of my ministry. I mean, you come across a lot of things, right? In three decades, you meet all kinds of people. Proud, stubborn, angry men who refuse to be led, who refuse to take counsel, who refuse to submit to authority, who refuse to obey their leaders in the Lord. They will not be told what to do. No matter how good it is for them, they will not be told what to do. They often feel that they know better than their pastors. And so they go their own way. They do their own thing and often to their own harm and destruction. Children do this same sort of thing with their parents. Children will not be told what to do. Mom and dad don't know anything. I don't even know how they became mom and dad. Surely they don't know what I know. But this is a problem we have. We have an authority problem inherited from our father, Adam. We don't want to be told what to do. And the simple fact is that some men would rather live with their leprosy until death than humble their hearts in order to live. 
I want you to remember something here, though. A man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. A man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So until you cool your jets and deal with your own anger and rage, your leprosy, your disease, your wounds, your sins, all of those things that will kill you will continue to fester and ooze in your life. Whatever it is behind the anger, whether it's fear or whether it's pride, it has to be dealt with. And this is exactly what you see unfold in Naaman's story. Naaman goes out in a fit of rage. He's not going to have anything to do with the prophet. And then his servants come and talk sense into him. His servants get it. They're like, are you kidding me? He didn't ask you to do some great thing. He didn't say jump over a tall building with a single bound or to outrun a speeding bullet. He said, go take a bath in the river. And the promise attached to that is you're going to be cleansed. Isn't that why you came all this way? And so they talk sense into him. He thinks about it. He calms down enough to go down to the river and to wash himself seven times. He washes away his leprosy by dipping himself in the water. The Greek word that's used here for dip is the word baptism, baptized himself. And the Hebrew word that's used here is used all the time to refer to what priests do, dipping their finger in the blood and sprinkling blood on the sanctuary or dipping a live bird into the blood of a dead bird to sprinkle a leper to cleanse them. It even describes what the priests did when they carried the ark across the Jordan. When their feet were dipped in the water, the water stopped flowing and it was held up upstream so Israel could cross on dry ground. Naaman dips himself in the river and washes away his leprosy and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a little child. What we have here is a picture, a graphic picture of regeneration, of new birth, of renewal and regeneration that comes through water and by the Spirit. This is what we see unfolding in Naaman's life. Many years ago, I was a missionary down in South Mexico, and as we shared the gospel with people, people would come to faith and, uh, and then request baptism. And on one occasion, a woman who was close to 60 years old came and requested baptism after she had come to faith. And uh, I was in a tradition that required people to be immersed, full immersion. It was the only way, only acceptable way baptism could be practiced in that tradition. The problem is this woman was terrified of water. She told me that in all of her years of life, she had never been underwater even once. Not even when she lived in Acapulco and spent time splashing around in the ocean. She had never been underwater one time in her life. She was terrified of the water. She had seen other baptisms take place, and she said, why can't you just baptize me by sprinkling or by pouring? And I thought, it's a great idea, but this tradition does not allow that. So we had to work through this issue. She was very much like Naaman, sort of putting up resistance, not sure how to approach this. One day she finally came and said, I'm going to do it. Let's, let's do the baptism. So what we had to do there is call a water truck to go get water out of a well 
and bring the truck in and the, pump the water into our baptistry and fill it up with water so we could administer baptism. I go into the water and I hold out my hand and welcome Soledad to come into the water with me. We're both standing there shivering. And I say a few words and I baptize her in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when she comes up out of the water, she says, Santa Maria, el agua está fría. (laughs) Holy Mary, the water is cold. (laughs) That is not the prayer you expect to hear. in a Protestant evangelical (laughs) church. But the point is, she got past her pride, got past her ego to do the thing that the Lord God required of her. Now, I'm not here to promote that mode of baptism. I think there are other modes that are just as good. Uh, For example, when you eat your chicken nuggets and you dip in the honey or the hot mustard sauce, You don't immerse those things, do you? And get it all over your fingers. You just dip, right? So the mode is not the thing here. The mode is not the thing. The thing is to see that it's the power and the promise of God that does its work to restore people. We see in this story a foreshadowing of things to come. We see that God in this story is trying to open Israel's eyes to the needs of the world. That he's trying to turn Israel inside out so that they don't only consider who they are as God's people, but they consider God's mission in the world. That they are to be a light unto the Gentiles, to draw people to the true and living God. And we know this because Jesus uses this very story when he inaugurated his mission. In Luke chapter 4, the scriptures tell us that Jesus stood up in a synagogue And he read from Isaiah the prophet, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to open the eyes of the blind, to set free the captive, to help the oppressed, to set at liberty those who are in bondage. And when he finished, he said, This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing today. And the people got very nervous in the synagogue. What does he mean it's fulfilled? And then Jesus went on to say, There were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and Elisha was not sent to any of them, but only to Naaman the Syrian. And when Jesus said these things, the irony is the people responded exactly like Naaman did. They threw a fit of rage. They were angry with Jesus. In fact, they went beyond Naaman because they wanted to throw Jesus off a cliff. What do you mean God cares about the world? What do you, how could you possibly say God cares about Syrians, our rivals, our arch enemies? And Jesus opens his ministry by saying, God loves the world. That's why I'm here. I'm here for the insiders and the outsiders. This is why Jesus sends us on mission to the world. You see... Hints and flashes of the Great Commission in 2 Kings 5. Jesus comes along and says, Go make disciples of all the nations. How? By baptizing them. By teaching them. But all the nations. Not just your nation. But nations that go beyond the borders of your nation. 
nations where you think you have enemies. That includes Syria, if you're in Israel. That includes the outsiders, if you think you're an insider. Go into all the world and do what the little girl and what Elisha the prophet and the servants of Naaman did. Participate in the life of God. Participate in the mission of God for the life of the world. Why? Because there are walking dead all around us. And we're called to point them to the Lord and the giver of life. We're reminded that the gospel is not just for insiders like us. It is for outsiders like Naaman. It's not just for those who are clean and healthy. It's for those who are sick and dirty. It's not just for those who have been put back together, but for those who are still broken and shattered. The gospel is for the world. And the way God works through the church to bring people to himself is through our mission to the world. And as people are baptized, they're brought into union with Christ, where they are finally and fully put back together again, just like you were. The Apostle Paul reminds us that when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. In other words, we're to remember from time to time that once upon a time, we were the unclean, we were the outsiders, we were the filthy lepers, we were the broken ones. And it is only through the mercy and grace of God that we are who we are and what we are. But we can't keep it to ourselves. We've got to tell people there is a God in Israel. There is a God in the church. There is Jesus Christ at the right hand of God, the true healer of body and soul. This story shows us that we should not call any person, anywhere, at any time, common or unclean. That we should not show partiality or favoritism Why? Because God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Anyone. This is what the apostle Peter learned through a vision from God, because even the apostles were blinded to the fact that Christ had sent them to the nations. They were resistant to the fact that outsiders could actually become insiders because of the love of Christ for them. And when he finally goes on mission to the Naaman of his day, Cornelius, the centurion, this is what he preaches. This is the message that God sent to the world through Israel. That God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. His enemies put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him appear to the apostles who had been chosen by God as witnesses. And he commanded them to preach to the people and to testify that Jesus is Lord of all, that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And all the prophets bear witness to Jesus that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. 
If you are impressed by the fact that Elisha the prophet cleansed the leprosy of Naaman the Syrian, how much more should you be impressed that the Lord Jesus Christ has forgiven your sins and that he promises to forgive the sins of anyone and everyone who turns to him by faith? Why? Because the gospel of peace goes out through the people of God. And the gospel of peace isn't just about peace on earth. It's about peace between God and man. That God has come to reconcile the world to himself through Jesus Christ. We're sent on mission for the life of the world. Why? Because the living dead are all around us. Because the world is full of Naamans and his mistress who need the gospel of peace. Because there are outsiders who still need to become insiders. Because there are dirty and broken wretches in the world who need to become clean, healed sons and daughters of God. Because God loved the world so much that he sent his son Jesus into the world to save the world, not to condemn it. Let's mission. Let's do our part to point people to the power and the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray.